Uh, my name is Martin Wagner. I'm uh, one of the pastors at Faith Presbyterian Church, uh, a sister uh, church uh, in uh, Evangel Presbyterian, the PCA, and uh, it's a delight to be here with you uh, tonight. I know it's a different passage and it's printed and you might not have a copy of it, so feel free to uh, uh, open up your phone and follow along if you have the right app, or, um, but if you could find a copy of John uh, 8, that might be helpful uh, as we look at it. Uh, every year, around this time of year, uh, there are a series of shows that come out. Uh, most of the time, they are on uh, CNN or the Discovery Channel, and they have titles like this, Who is the Real Jesus? Or something like, Uncovering the Hidden Jesus of the Gospels. Uh, I can't say that uh, I would recommend that that would be uh, a good thing to watch. What you normally find is that uh, they're not really looking for the real Jesus. Uh, they're rather trying to create a Jesus in their own image, one who looks a lot like them and has a lot of their own values. Uh, but the question that those documentaries ask is a valid question, one that I want to consider tonight, and it is, who is Jesus Christ? If I asked you that question, what would your response be? The Pharisees asked that question in, a chap- in a verse 25 of our passage. They said, who are you? Jesus. Uh, They were so angry with him, they got, just broke down and said, who are you? Uh, And John uh, says at the end of this gospel, that's why he wrote his gospel. In John 20, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so that's what we're going to look at this evening. Who is Jesus? And uh, how is Jesus revealed to us? In John 8. And so I'm going to divide the passage into four parts. First, we're going to talk about uh, perspective, what it would have been like uh, to hear Jesus utter these words. And secondly, a proclamation that Jesus makes. Uh, thirdly, a promise that he makes. And then lastly, a proof that he offers. So perspective, proclamation, promise, and proof. So first, I want to situate ourselves in the passage in John 8. Uh, this passage takes on a new life when we consider uh, the context of it. Uh, if you are looking at a Bible or uh, in, uh, on your phone, you'll probably notice that uh, John seven fifty three through eight twelve. Uh, it's got something around it. Sometimes it's got double brackets around it, or maybe depending on your version of the Bible you read, it might be deleted altogether. Um, In the ESV, which I assume is what we're using here, uh, what we read, uh, the ESV puts uh, double brackets around it and says uh, this text was not in the earliest manuscripts. And uh, uh, we believe um, that uh, that portion, uh, that story was added later, at a later date. It could have been original to John, but it was not original uh, to his gospel. Uh, We don't know for sure. But one thing that is for certain about that passage is that it will preach. It's an incredible passage. Jesus drawing a line in the sand. Uh, A woman caught in adultery being thrown out uh, in this crowd of scribes. And one by one the scribes leaving. It's an incredible passage. uh, But not one that is original to John's gospel. But what happens is so if you take that passage out of the beginning of chapter 8. You see how chapter 7 connects with our passage this evening. 
Jesus is still, in chapter 7, he was at, a, at the Feast of the Tabernacles, and he is still at the Feast of the Tabernacles in John 8. And so, uh, it also goes by the name of the Festival of Booths, or the Festival of Tabernacles. And it was one of the big feasts that they would have uh, every year. Uh, this would take place in the fall, and for a week, uh, they would have a nationwide campout. Uh, they would move out of their perfectly good homes, and they would set up tents on the top of their roofs, and they would move out. And they would have a week-long party uh, to celebrate. And uh, they would, people would write about the tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, and they would say, if you wanted to see joy, if you wanted to see God's people joyful, go to this feast. This was the biggest party of the year. God commanded his people to have fun. Uh, God commanded them to have joy, uh, to stop what they were doing, and for seven days to rejoice in him. Uh, I will say that the idea of camping out in the backyard is not my idea of fun. Uh, It doesn't bring me uninhibited joy when I think about camping out in the backyard. I'm a big fan of electricity. Uh, I love central heat and air. Uh, I believe that Indoor plumbing is one of God's good gifts to us, and it seems like camping is just making life harder than it really has to be. Um, the idea of a week-long campout is not my idea of how I want to spend summer vacation. Uh, but with the Israelites, this was the party of the year. Uh, but what were they celebrating? Uh, in the festival of booths or tabernacles, they had both agricultural significance and it also had Uh, historical roots as well. They were celebrating because the last of the crops had come in. Uh, The work was done, the crops were in, and they were celebrating that God had provided for them again this year. But it also had historical roots. Uh, They were also celebrating something in their history. Uh, In Leviticus 23, uh, you read this, which I'm sure you guys probably read this morning. Uh, It makes sense, right? Leviticus 23 is where we all read. Uh, You shall dwell... In booths for seven days, all native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. What they were doing in the seven-day campout was reenacting the past. Uh, It's similar uh, in some ways to the Rickwood Classic. You know, where the barons will go, go over to Rickwood Field and they're going to put on the old uniforms. They're actually not having it this year, uh, but imagine next year. Uh, they're going to put on the old uniforms and everyone is going to go to the game and uh, close from a bygone era. And it's a throwback game. And people will tell stories of this is how baseball was back in the day. It wasn't, it's not enough that they would just talk about how baseball used to be. It wasn't that they would just share stories, but that they would bodily reenact what it was like to play baseball in the 50s. Um, In a sense, we do the same thing every week. Uh, It's not just that you need to hear that Jesus' body was broken for you and that his blood was spilled for you, but we reenact that uh, every week. Um, we get together and we tell the same old story each week of the body and blood of Christ broken for you. But this festival uh, was a, a means, a way 
of reenacting what God did in the wilderness, of how God provided for his people in the wilderness. You'll remember that God delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. They were slaves in a foreign land, but God set them free. And he promised them a land. He said, I'm going to put you in a land in which you're going to flourish. You're going to have milk and honey. He promised them that they would be free from slavery, that they would be free to love and to serve him. But between their deliverance and the promised land, there was a wilderness. And if you think seven days is a long camp out, try 40 years. That's a really long camp out. And at this festival, they would remember God provided for us in the wilderness. They would remember how God had been good to them, of how when they were hungry, God rained down manna every day, that he provided daily bread for them, that in 40 years in the wilderness, they didn't go hungry. God provided for them. They would remember of when they were thirsty, how God provided water from a rock, how Moses struck the rock with his staff and water gushed from the rock. They would remember how when they were hot in the desert, under the scorching sun, that God provided a cloud. A cloud that symbolized his presence, but a cloud that was a shade to them amidst the hot sun. Of how at night, when it got cold, and they were scared, that God was a pillar of fire. That his presence was made known, that they were warmed at night. They were reminded again that God was with them. God was their shade in the day, their light at night. He rained down manna on them every day. He gave them water from a rock over and over again in the wilderness. God provided for his people. And when you think about the wilderness, and when you think about how God provided for his people in the wilderness, there's three objects that come to mind. We've talked about them. You have manna, you have water, and you have fire. If you are reading this section of the Gospel of John, you see those same three things again. In this section, what Jesus is doing in the section of the Gospel of John is he's showing that he is the true and better Moses. That the presence and protection that God's people had in the wilderness is surpassed in him. Just think about it in John chapter 6. If you remember that passage, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. God's people got manna in the desert that would last for a day, but in him they have the bread of life that leads to eternal life. He's the true manna from heaven, the true bread that gives life. What about chapter 7? Chapter 7 takes place at this feast. And there was a ceremony that they would go through, and every day they would surround the altar, and the priest would pour out water from the altar. And there they would remember that God provided water in the desert. That in unlikely ways and in unlikely times that God gave them what they need. And at the end of John 7, Jesus stands up and said, If you believe in me, out of you will flow rivers of living water. Not just water from a rock, not just water from a day. That Jesus, the true and better rock, as Paul would tell us, that that rock was Christ that from him would flow life. From him flows blessing and nourishment from the world. Do you see Jesus is saying he is the true and better Moses? And we see that again in our passage in John 8. In John 8, we have this declaration, I am the light of the world. 
I am the presence of God in your midst. I give life. I am your light. And just one more thing on the Feast of Booths that I hope will pull this together that will um, bring it into better clarity. One more thing that happened during this festival that is uh, important for our passage this morning. They also had a, a way of remembering the pillar of fire at night. During this feast, uh, they would have these candelabras that, would, uh, that were kept burning in the temple to symbolize uh, that God uh, was leading them by a pillar of fire in the wilderness. And these were not just your ordinary candelabras. You don't, uh, we have one there for demonstration. Think about that times 100. These were 50 to 75 feet tall. These were in the court of, uh, of the women in the temple. So the most prominent place and the most prominent building uh, in, in Jerusalem, you would have these four huge 75-foot candelabras. Think about Olympic torch. You know, when the torch is, uh, remains lit during the entire Olympic Games. But four of these things uh, would be uh, visible from every part of the city. And they would say that every courtyard in Jerusalem was illumined by these candelabra. It was a huge bonfire in the middle of the city. And the party would go on into the night because God was their light by night. And there's just something captivating about a bonfire, about a fire at night. It's a good time of year to do that. Uh, You find yourself, there's a fire and there's darkness, and you just find yourself standing around the fire just staring at it. You really can't do anything but stare at the fire and you make a comment about how good the fire is. And then someone else walks up and says, well, that's a really good fire. And then the next thing that happens is someone breaks out a guitar. And then the next thing, someone tries to see what they can burn in the fire. And then the final phase is that someone says, do you think I can jump over the fire? Uh, That's the final phase of bonfire. But there's these primal instincts that come out when we are around fire. Um, But in our passage... The party had just ended. The festival was over. Uh, The party's over. The lights are out. And it's with this perspective that Jesus stands up. After they had just seen the biggest bonfire of the year, Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus stands up and says, in a sense, Everything you've been doing, it all points to me. The water, the fire, the booze, celebration, the protection, the provision, it all points to me. But let's move on to what it is that Jesus says in this proclamation that he makes. I am the light of the world. There's both an exclusive and an inclusive proclamation that he makes. First, the exclusive claim. He starts with, I am. In no uncertain terms, he's pushing us back to Exodus 3. You'll remember uh, Moses at the burning bush. God, what is your name? God replies, I am who I am. Jesus is using the covenant name of God. He's identifying himself as God. And he does the same thing at least seven more times in the gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, the life, and on and on. Jesus is identifying himself 
with the name of God in the closest and the most intimate way, he is claiming that he and the Father are one. And this would have infuriated those who were listening to him. It was a scandal that he would claim the name of God as his own. But Jesus says that he is the light, the world. He did not say that I am a light among other lights. He didn't say that I will point you to the light. He didn't say that if you follow my teachings, you will be enlightened. He said that I am the light, the world, that all truth, all life is found in me. And if you are not connected to me, then you are in darkness. So if you want to know God, if you want to be in God's presence, if you want to draw near to God, you have to start with Jesus. Jesus says, I am the light. And so if you are not with me, you are in darkness. There is no spiritual light apart from me. Wherever Jesus is not present, there is darkness. This is an exclusive claim by Jesus. If you want to know God, you have to look at Jesus. You cannot get there from anywhere else. But there's also an inclusive claim that he makes as well. I am the light of the world, not just the light of a certain group of people. He's not just the light of the Jewish people only, but he has come for the whole world. He's not just the light that fills the courtyards in Jerusalem for a week. He is the light of all creation. And so in one statement, Jesus is saying that he is the exclusive source of light and truth, but that access to him is available for everyone. You know, it's no secret that our world is filled with darkness. Our world is filled with violence, with disease, uh, with wars. It seems like it's getting worse. Our nation is filled with strife and hatred and greed and sin of every kind. There's even darkness in our own relationships. Uh, There's disconnection in marriage. There's family dysfunction. There is brokenness that is a result of sin. There is abuse and infidelity and addiction and hatred and greed. But the darkness is not just out there. It's not just something that exists external to us, but the darkness is also inside of us as well. There's darkness in our own souls. In our inner world... There are dark secrets, secrets that are hidden under layers and layers of shame and guilt. Things that if light were shined on them, that you would want to die if they were exposed. Things that we hide in the darkness of our own souls. The proclamation that Jesus makes is that there is not one square inch in this world that his light cannot shine, not one square inch that his light cannot overcome, that he is the light of the world and that he has come for the darkness. And you might think there is no hope. You don't know my situation. There is no hope for me that I cannot imagine anything other than the present darkness in my life, that there is no way that God could redeem my situation. There's no way uh, that God could love me with what that I have done. But we're reminded in this passage is that it is darkness that Jesus has come for. 
that he came as a light for the nations, as a light for the dark and the broken places in us and in all of the world, and a reminder that no one and nowhere is beyond his love and care. No matter what darkness you find yourself in this evening, whether darkness from the outside, no matter what you have done or what has been done to you, the proclamation is that Jesus, the light of the world, is for you. But what is the promise that he makes to us in this passage? After the proclamation that he is the light of the world, he promises that those who follow him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you read the end of the verse, the original language throws an extra uh, word in there. It says, they will have the light of the life. The extra article is there for emphasis. Some might translate it, those who follow after me will not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of real life. Jesus is saying, if you want to have real life, you'll have to find it in me. There are no shortage of products out there that offer us real life. We are bombarded with the message every day that your life is in the dark. Uh, But if you buy this, if you consume this, if you experience this, you'll have real life. Just think about the ads in your favorite magazine. They're not just selling you a product, they're selling you a life. They're selling you their version of the good life. If you really want to live, you've got to have this. If you want to be happy, if you want to be content, you'll need to have this. You'll need to experience this. And the implicit message is that we all lack something and that you are in the dark and that you are not complete. But the promise is that they will make you complete. But Jesus in this passage makes the promise that real life is found in him, that true joy, true contentment can only be found in him. But let's admit there's something that's actually really threatening about that for us as well, that light is not always a welcome thing for us. There are times in which living in darkness can sound like a very attractive option. You might have experienced this if you swapped a bulb in your a bathroom, a 40-watt bulb for a 100-watt bulb, and all of a sudden, you turn the light on and the intensity is much greater and you notice that you've, uh, the room's a lot dirtier than you first thought and you've got a lot more wrinkles uh, than you first thought as well. You think, maybe life would be better if I just went back to the old bulbs. Maybe life was better in the dark. The same is true of God. When we are in the light, what is true of us is exposed, even the stuff that we didn't know was there to begin with. And as we move closer to the light, we will begin to see what is true. And that's a scary thing, to be in the light of God. It's a scary thing to have sin revealed unless you are convinced that whatever is revealed is covered by the blood of Jesus, that he is the light that took on all of our darkness and that in him all of our sins are forgiven. What's going to free you to admit, to confess your sins? It is the assurance that whatever you confess is covered in him. But don't miss the part of what Jesus is promising. Jesus is promising that he will be with us. What did the Israelites need to be reminded of again and again in the wilderness? You know, 
I think about what if I would have been in the wilderness for 40 years? Um, would you have ever thought, God, are you still there? We've been here for a long time. Uh, are you still with us? If they ever wondered if God was with them, all they had to do was look up. God was with them. Even when the world seemed upside down, God was with them. Even when it seemed like they had been in the same place for a long time, there had been no movement, they could look up and they could see that God was with them. And that might be what you need to hear this evening, that God's not left you. Things might be really dark right now in your life. And what you need to hear is the promise that he makes that those who are in the light are never alone in the darkness that they faced. But after Jesus proclaims that he is the light of the world, after he gives a promise to them, the Pharisees come back at him in the last verses, verses of this passage, and they want proof. They want proof. How can you say this? How can we know what you are saying is true? You are bearing witness about yourself. And the Pharisees are like a great philosopher once said, you know, that's just like your opinion, man. Uh, you don't, do you have any witnesses that could prove that you are the light of the world? Uh, their response amounts to them calling Jesus a liar. But in his grace, Jesus gives them proof of who he is. But we find it's not the proof that they are really looking for. And so in response to their protest, Jesus tells them that he does have a witness. Verse 18, I bear witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Jesus says, every time I open my mouth, I get an amen from the Father. Uh, We will see this over and over in the Gospel of John. Jesus says again and again, you cannot know God apart from me. If you want to know what God is like, look at me. And you can imagine the Pharisees are getting pretty amped up at this point. Jesus is not letting them down. Letting down, he is actually only increasing the strength of his claim. And so they say to him in verse 25, you can imagine they're pretty frustrated. Jesus, who are you anyway? And he replies, just what I've been telling you. If you want to know who I am, Jesus says, I've been telling you from the beginning. I've been telling you who I am. If you want to know who I am, look at my word Jesus says, I am the word of God come to you. And you might be asking the same thing this evening. Jesus, who are you? His answer is the same. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. If you know who Jesus is, look to his word. If you know who Jesus is, the Bible is about him from beginning to end. The whole story is about him. If you want to know God... Look at Jesus. If you want to know Jesus, you'll find him in his word. Who is Jesus? Just who he's been telling us from the beginning, from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about him. It's not just that the Feast of Booths point to him, but that it all points to him. And so, if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, and you're wondering, who is Jesus? I don't think you'll find the answer on the Discovery Channel 
on the documentary about who is Jesus. But I know that you will encounter him face to face when you see him in the word. If you want to know Jesus, you'll find him in his word. That's what we've been given and that's what we've promised is sufficient for all that we need. But you might ask, what does the Bible tell us about Jesus? And he points us to the heart of the message in verse 28. When you see, when you uh, you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he. And this phrase, when you have lifted up, it occurs at least two other places in John's gospel. And every time he's pointing to the cross. When he says lifted up, he's pointing to that time in which he will be lifted up on the cross to bear the sins of the world. Jesus is saying to them, when you see me on the cross, that's when you will know who I am. When you see me naked and beaten and despised, when you see me humiliated and broken, then you will know who I am. It is on the cross where we see God in his most accessible form to us. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus on the cross. Do you want to know how much God loves his world? Look at Jesus on the cross. Do you want to know how much God hates sin? How much he hates evil in his world? How much he hates what's been done to you? Look at Jesus on the cross. How do you know that Jesus has overcome the darkness that you face? Look to the cross where he took your darkness on himself. Where Luke tells us in his gospel that in the middle of the day, that as the sun hung on the cross, the Father turned the lights out. That over all of the land was darkness from noon to three. All darkness, all sin, all pain, and all suffering was put on him. Who is Jesus? It's a question we've all got to answer, and one that Jesus answers himself. Look at my word and look at my cross. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would be near to those who are hurting, those who are struggling, that they would know your comfort. Lord, that you would use this word and that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that it would bear much fruit for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.